Hi, I'm glad you could join me for another look at uh, some good apologetics books. This is Gary Zacharias with the Apologist Bookshelf. I wanted to look at a book by Hal Seed, S-E-E-D. He's a founding pastor of a New Song Community Church in Oceanside, California. I've met Hal and appreciate his ministry. And this book is called The Bible Questions. He's written other books, but um, John Ortberg says, if you have any questions about the Bible, this is the place to start. So it's probably not the, the, the deepest and most complete book, but that's fine. That's not his purpose. So it's kind of a general knowledge book. And uh, so he talks about figuring out where the Bible came from and how it was put together and organized the way it is and what all the parts are about. And you really do gain a new appreciation, I think, for the Bible. So let me do this. Let me take uh, chapter three this time. Who decided what went into the Bible? Okay, that's a pretty good question, isn't it? Was this kind of a power play? Was this a, a Roman emperor at one time? Was this a, a church meeting hundreds and hundreds of years later that just picked a random 66 books? Uh, so where did we get the Bible? And he said just about everybody wants to know how those 66 books ended up in the Bible. Why, why those? Why not more? Why not fewer? Uh, how do we get them all? And he says... Um, if you go back and think about Christianity when it got started, okay, so under Roman law, new religions were illegal, he says, and at first Christianity was just seen as part of Judaism, but then once it was determined it was a separate religion, then it was illegal to identify as a Christian, and it was uh, actually uh, during the Christian era, the first three centuries, it was a crime to be a Christian. There was persecution, and uh, believers got tortured. The emperor Diocletian ordered a confiscation of Christian property and the burning of scriptures. So Christians and their book became so inseparable that the way you got rid of Christianity was to eliminate the Bible. So he gave a little bit of background there. So here comes the question, who decided what went into the Bible? He says, well, short answer, no one. He said maybe a better answer is to say God did. So he said there were about uh, five characteristics that uh, books had to have to be qualified to be called scripture, but he said you, you kind of recognize those in hindsight. No, no particular group sat down and came up with these five points in history. And he says after the resurrection, we think about Jesus, that he commissioned his followers to go and make disciples, and they shared the good news. Now these Jewish believers, of course, the, the early Jews that uh, believed in Jesus, they already had scripture. That's what we would call the Old Testament. And that's what Jesus was talking about when he spoke of the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. And he says outside the Holy Land, uh, some Jews included a few other books as part of Scripture. And uh, he mentions the Septuagint that got translated in Egypt, which was going from Hebrew to Greek, had books in it that we don't recognize as Protestants, but it's called the Apocrypha. Kind of an interesting word, it just means something that's hidden. Now, early Christians differed whether these books should be part of Scripture or not. The ones who lived in Palestine, or at least close to Palestine, excluded them, but those who were closer to Rome tended to include them. Now, he says, uh, during the 16th century Reformation, Martin Luther spoke out really strongly against this ap apocrypha. Uh, he said it was uh, in reaction, of course, then the Roman Catholics, who didn't like what Luther was up to, they had their own council coming together in Trent, and they declared the Apocrypha was canonical. So he said that's a disagreement we see even down to today. Catholics uphold the Apocrypha. Protestants say, well, the Apocrypha may be useful, but not inspired. 
So wherever Christianity went, people would gather and they would read you know, a portion of the Old Testament scripture and it would be explained. And meanwhile, you had the apostles and these early evangelists and teachers. They would travel from place to place to plant churches churches, and encourage believers. And then, of course, when one of them would show up in the town, he'd be invited to speak. Well, as needs arose, of course, the apostles would write letters to various churches. And can you imagine the excitement when people in these churches would get a letter from Paul or James or something like that? And that letter would often get copied and shared with neighborhood neighborhood churches and in the next district and so on. And the more inspiring these letters were, they were copied and shared more often. Now, Paul, in his letter to the Colossians, says this. This is uh, Colossians 4.16. After this letter has been read to you, see to it, see that it's also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and that you in turn read the letter from Laodiceans. Well, apparently... We still have Colossians, but we don't have that letter to the Laodiceans. It must not have been considered inspired or pertinent enough to be preserved. So that one dropped by the wayside. About 150 AD, Justin Martyr said this is the way worship took place. He said, quote, On the day called the Day of the Sun, all who live in cities or in the country gather together in one place, and the memoirs of the apostles or the writings of the prophets are read, as long as time permits. And then they said they all rise together and pray. So notice that what he was saying was that you had these memoirs of the apostles, and that was considered just as important as the writings of the prophets, you know, the Old Testament. About 10 years earlier from Justin Martyr, there was a wealthy shipowner named Marcion. Now, he sailed from his home near the Black Sea to the capital city of Rome. Now, he thought that the God who was revealed in the Old Testament was different than the God of the New Testament. The God in the Old Testament was distant and cold and loved justice, but the God in the New Testament was loving and emphasized grace. So what did he do? He rejected the Old Testament along with any writings that would reinforce a view that he didn't agree with. So he developed a list of books that he did consider acceptable. What were they? Well, part of the Gospel of Luke, 10 of Paul's letters, and then a letter supposedly from Paul to some people called the Alexandrians. So that became known as the Marcion Canon. So this is the early 100s. The church had to respond to this. Most Christians, even if they didn't have their own list, at least had a sense of what was scripture and what wasn't. Well, move forward a few years. Between 156 and 172, there came another guy who uh, stirred the pot a little bit. His name was Montanus. And he had two prophetesses with him, Prisca and Maximilla. And they had these ecstatic visions, and they called the church to a higher standard of righteousness and zeal. And that's fine. That that would have been good. But they included what they called new prophecy, and that pushed Christ and the apostolic message into the background. So now Jesus is being overshadowed, I should say, by this uh, emphasis on the Holy Spirit. And Montanus was the spokesperson. So now people are kind of stirred up. What's going on here? Is this a new prophecy? Is this new authority? So the church had to respond another time. So in AD 144, the Church of Rome excommunicated Marcion and continued this sifting process to decide what was scripture and what wasn't. The Montanus controversy made the church even go further. They had to ask questions. What Was God really bringing further revelation? What what if this came about, but it contradicted things that Jesus and the apostles taught? Could that new truth change or add to the teachings of the church? 
that the church had been feasting on? And the answer was no. So from this, because of Montanus, the church concluded the canon of Scripture was closed. So the church developed then at this time that list that Hal Seed referred to before of five characteristics or five questions you could ask to see if a book really belonged in the New Testament. So number one, was the book written by a prophet of God? Number two, was it confirmed by acts of God? Number three, did it tell the truth about God? Number four, did it come with the power of God? And number five, really crucial, was it accepted by God's people? So Halseed says these are the marks of canonicity. Fancy term, you know, canon. It's just a Greek word that means some kind of a measuring stick or like a ruler. So those five questions can be used to determine which books would, like the tape measure or something, they would measure up to being labeled divinely inspired. He says, take a look at the Bible's table of contents in the New Testament. You see that all of those books, you'll, you'll see they were written either by a prophet or an apostle or somebody who was directly related to one. And uh, what about acts of God? Well, miracles. And we saw in Exodus 4 in the Old Testament, Moses was given miraculous powers to confirm his call. In 2 Corinthians 12, Paul says the mark of an apostle is signs, wonders, and miracles. And it says truth cannot contradict itself. A point number three, did the message tell the truth about God? So those books all had to agree with each other. I mean, that's pretty logical. So if the facts of a book were inaccurate, it couldn't be from God. Okay, what about number four? Did it come with the power of God? So the inner witness of the Spirit was really important. A key question that the early Christians would ask is when we read this, is there an inner sense from God that what was written is right and true? And then number five, was it accepted by God's people? That's really crucial, you know. What, what was the original audience's sense? Did they accept this as a word from God? Now, Daniel called Jeremiah's book, Scripture, in Daniel 9.2. Paul calls the, calls the Gospel of Luke, Scripture, in 1 Timothy 5.18. Peter affirms that Paul's letters were Scripture in 2 Peter 3.16. Okay, well, even before Marcion and Montanus, the church was already aware of these important criteria. So let's go back. A.D. 96, Clement of Rome wrote this. The apostles were made evangelists to us by the Lord Christ. Jesus Christ was sent by God. Thus Christ is from God and the apostles from Christ. The church is built on them as a foundation. So after Marcion and Montanus then, lists of New Testament books began to appear. One of the first is something called the Muratorian Fragment. It was discovered among uh, some Vatican documents by somebody in the 1700s, and it dates to around 190 AD. Now, this is way before Constantine. It's way before any church council like the Council of Nicaea. So if you've ever read Dan Brown's material, uh, Da Vinci Code, he's way off. Uh, Yeah, they already had a very good idea of what books belonged in the New Testament way before Constantine and that council. That'd be in the 300s. But here we're back in about 190. So this is called the Muratorian Fragment. Now, it's unfortunate that the fragment's damaged, but the part that we have begins with this. The third book of the gospel is that according to Mark. Well, that's interesting. So third gospel, just like in our Bible today, probably the first two are Matthew and Mark. And then the fragment goes on to list John, Acts, all of Paul's letters, James, First and Second John, Jude, and the Revelation of John. 
It also includes the revelation of Peter, wisdom of Solomon, and the shepherd of Hermas. Okay, so those have been tossed aside. But do you see how close that is to our modern list? So by the early 3rd century, so we're talking the 200s, only a handful of books that we now call our New Testament were in question at all. And, and, and part of it is just geographical location. So he, uh, Hal Seed points out, for example, in western parts of the empire, the book of Hebrews faced some opposition. And in the east, people were scratching their heads over Revelation. So Eusebius, a church historian in the 4th century, records that the only books that really got spoken against they are recognized by others, but the only ones that raised any kind of doubts would be James, Second Peter, Second Third John, and Jude. And uh, we would lose something, I suppose, of value there if they were tossed. But James, um, from what I've heard before, is that people thought maybe he was contradicting Paul. Paul says we're saved by grace, and some people thought James was indicating works, which I don't think there is that contradiction. Second um, Peter didn't sound like First Peter, so people wondered about that. And so, yeah, there was a little bit of controversy there, but they were spoken against, but then got accepted. And then you have Athanasius. He's in 367. He's the bishop of Alexandria. He wrote an Easter letter that had all 27 books of our present New Testament. Then in 393, there was a synod that affirmed the current list. 397, the Council of Carthage published the same list. So, Here's the catch, or not the catch, but here's the, the bottom line. The church did not develop the canon. God did that. He took care of it and preserved them. The church recognized the canon. It was already out there. These books were circulating. These books were affirmed. These books were honored. And so the five things, I want to go back one more time. These five things, these five questions are what the, the books that we have uh, fulfilled. Was a book written by a prophet or somebody that knew a prophet of God, right? Was the writer confirmed by acts of God? Did the message tell the truth about God? Did it come with the power of God? Was it accepted by God's people? So if it, if it meant those five criteria, then it was in the New Testament. So interesting book. Again, it's called The Bible Questions. A lot of good things in here. It's got, uh, let me just share with you real quickly. Does the Bible speak to people? What's the Bible's purpose? Could the Bible make me a better person? Why are there so many translations? Why is there only one way to heaven? When will Jesus return? Where's the Trinity found in Scripture? So it does more than just look at the Bible itself. It's got some good theological questions in there. So the author again, Hal Seed. It's only a hundred and some, let's see. Um, a little short of 200 pages. So it's an easy read, but it's powerful. Good stuff in there. All right, well, thanks, and uh, we'll see you later.